What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. So Josh, my buddies, Wu, Yang, and Lee, want to see Black Hat. They need to hear from Kassar first. Kassar texts, Wu, Yang, and Lee walk by. The receiver's in their pockets, pick it up. They read it, delete it. Kassar never meets him, never sees him. No emails, no phones, no nothing. I don't know, seems a little complicated, which might explain Black Hat's failure to catch fire at the box office. Chris Hemsworth there as super hacker Nick Hathaway in Black Hat, the new thriller from Michael Mann. A major flop when it opened a couple weekends ago, but it's from the director of Heat, The Insider, and Thief, so we're reviewing it anyway. We don't need no stinking box office. No, we don't. Plus, part two of our 2015 movie preview, the performances, actor pairings, and more that have us anticipating the year in film. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. you had a chance yet, film spotters, to check out the selection of movies offered by our new partner, Mubi. If you haven't, here are some new titles, some current titles playing there that you might want to give a try. Josh, with Sundance going on, they are deep in their Sundance retrospective. We talked about Hump Day previously playing there, Dark Days playing over at Mubi, but also Jess and Moss. This is Clay Jeter's feature debut. It's a cinematic stripped-back coming-of-age tale. That retrospective also has The Unforeseen. This is a documentary detailing the struggle between a real estate developer and the local community. It's shot by Richard Linklater's cinematographer Lee Daniel and executive produced not only by Terrence Malick, but also by Robert Redford. Mr. Sundance. Powerhouse support there. Bellflower is also on this docket. Oh, yeah, Bellflower. Yeah, do you remember that? Did you review it? No, I've always wanted Hmm. to see it. Forgot it existed. This is fantastic. It's a micro-budget, macro-style, post-apocalyptic indie romance from first-time director... Evan Glodow. I want to say three or four years ago when this movie came out, discussed on the show, but only in bonus content. Alas, not a full review. A very interesting debut film, without a doubt. Mubi is a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. So every day, their curators introduce a new title, and then you've got 30 days to watch it. It's all just for $4.99 a month, and you can use their mobile app to download films to watch offline. Our listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Filmspotting to redeem now. Again, that's Mubi.com slash Filmspotting for a free month. M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Last week on the show, Josh, we of course shared our top five most anticipated movies of the new year. There's the new Star Wars sequel to look forward to, plus promising new stuff from Pixar. Quentin Tarantino's got a new movie coming out, Guillermo del Toro as well. At the top of our list was the new one from Terrence Malachy of Tree of Life and classics like Badlands and Days of Heaven. Remind me, is that Night of Cups or Cup of Nights? I've <laughs> already Night forgotten. Of Cups. It's Night of Cups and that's Night with a K. Okay, got it. This week, we continue our look ahead at 2015 with our most anticipated questions of the new movie year. We'll explain later in the show. First, though, Chris Hemsworth is the star, but Michael Mann brings the hammer in Black Hat. Some hacker is hitting our financial markets. Four major banks, and that's just what we know about? If we want clues to the hacker's identity, we need a man named Hathaway. What do we know about this guy? He's a convicted hacker serving 15 years. MIT. 
genius code right I want you to commute my sentence for identification and the apprehension of the guy you're after. Those are the terms. Is he political? Terrorist attack, any declaration? The guy we're working will drop the big hammer and not think twice about it. He's on the move again. Chicago, now China. This is only the beginning. He's still writing. 4-4. Every year, it seems, at least two or three inane articles are written detailing the chasm between movie critics and the average movie goer. And yet, there are occasions of perfect harmony. Take the top four highest-grossing movies of last year. The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and The Lego Movie average a Rotten Tomato score of 85%, with Mockingjay blowing the curve there just fresh at 65%. Even the number five-ranked movie, do you have a guess what it was, Josh? I was going to say Grand Budapest Hotel for some no. reason because it's Wes Anderson's biggest box office hit. Yeah, but... not quite up there with a movie like The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. Oh, wow. That's just barely fresh at 60%. Yeah, so even I was The say... Hobbit, you could say, critically acclaimed. Sometimes, though, it's the cynical who are in sync. As alluded to at the end of last week's show, Black Hat isn't going over too well with critics, rating a measly 31% on the tomato meter and a lackluster 49 over at Metacritic. How was Michael Mann's latest fared at the box office since opening January 16th on 2,500-plus screens? Its haul to date stands at just over $7 million. Yikes. Costing $70 million to make? Black Hat's a bona fide bomb. Maybe Chris Hemsworth could have used his trusty hammer and cape to help him and the FBI track down a fellow hacker who causes a nuclear plant meltdown in Hong Kong, makes a killing on soy futures, and seems to be setting up an even bigger, potentially catastrophic score. Josh, we don't typically spend much time worrying about why a movie does or doesn't resonate with anyone but ourselves, but man's body of work is almost universally appreciated by critics. Just a little quick handicapping here. Public Enemies, Miami Vice, Collateral, The Insider, and Heat, among others, all have positive Metacritic scores. And while audiences don't exactly flock to his films, his last three, Enemies, Vice, and Collateral, all took in $25 million during their respective opening weekends versus Black Hat's $4 million. NSA privacy overreaches, the celebrity nude photo leak, the Sony attack, and alleged North Korea connection. Black Hat's subject matter is certainly timely and relevant to moviegoers who, let's face it, probably don't have the looks, keyboard skills, or surprising bad assness for an MIT grad that Hemsworth's Nick Hathaway displays, but who do walk into the theater carrying their entire lives on their smartphones. Do you have any theories on the disconnect? And if you were significantly smarter and more tech-savvy, might you be covertly adding tickets to Black Hat to people's passbook apps, or are you going to fall in line? I would not say that it's worth undergoing any sort of illegal hacking scheme to get the word out about this movie. Fair enough. But I did like the movie. Okay. Uh, just maybe not that much. I think, you know, ultimately what we're learning here is the true monetary value of being the sexiest man alive. It just doesn't mean anything. No, not I, anymore. My world's, my world's been shattered. Um, yeah, Hemsworth, it probably is a reflection to a degree on his box office draw. Uh, that's for sure, because they played him up in the trailers and uh, didn't seem to bring a lot of people in. Who knows? Who knows why one of these things hits with an audience and and something that looks exactly the same according to the trailers and the marketing doesn't. This looked pretty cliched to me in the trailer unless you were a man aficionado and could pick up some of the stylistic cues of who was behind the camera here. 
But if you're just watching this in a barrage of other trailers while getting your popcorn together and finding your seat, I don't think it would stand out and draw people in, even though it is timely. You're absolutely right. We could talk maybe a little bit about how does the movie exploit its timeliness or exploit isn't the right word, but does it use the timeliness? Does it really explore some of these things or did it just happen to come out around the time that a lot of these stories broke? Mm -hmm. I don't think I did not find a lot here in terms of commentary on hacking or infiltration or global connectedness. It was to me the backdrop for Michael Mann to do some of the things that he does really well. I actually found the screenplay to be, you know, a fairly uh, flimsy collection of cliches that Mann manages to enliven just with the way he holds the camera, what he chooses to emphasize in a scene in terms of focus, in terms of angle, how he uses things like slow motion, Uh, effectively. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the joy. That was the joy of this movie. I thought Hemsworth was fine. Uh, He, you know, overdoes, they overdo the sexiness maybe in some parts, but he does make hacking intimate in other scenes. Mm -hmm. I thought he did bring an electricity to what could have been uh, fairly conventional moments of someone typing. I like how he asks if he can borrow someone's keyboard. May I? Very politely, you know, it's it's an overture. It's it's flirting almost. That worked fine. Uh, But overall, I think the people who are going to appreciate this are those who take the time to really carefully watch the choices being made in terms of the aesthetics. And if you're not in it for that, it will blow past you pretty quickly as, uh, you know, a a thriller that's not offering anything new. Mm -hmm. I'm with you completely on your estimation of the movie and in the sense that you have that it's not a commentary on anything in particular. It's not really a message movie, which I was grateful to see, honestly. I mean, I didn't go in expecting one or the other, though that's only partially true because I remember watching the trailer and hearing lines from someone off screen that you assume is the bad guy, this super hacker. And he says certain things that seem to be these kind of comments on how we live and privacy and whatever. Unless I dozed off, they're not in the movie. If you go to IMDb and look at the quotes page, they quote those from the trailer, but I don't remember them in the movie. So maybe they were in there at one point, but man just said, I'm gutting this. That's not what this film's about for me. They might, ha- you know, thinking about it, it was less provocative watching it than it was as a trailer. So you might be onto something there because I did get hints of that that were not followed through. But yeah, did it have to be that? No, not necessarily. And certainly we'd rather have it just set aside than handled clunkily. Mm -hmm. But it it didn't seem to tackle it at all to me. What I love about this movie and many of man's films overall are the type of moments we get where a professional proves why they're a professional and recognizes a kinship in someone else. And only then do you have respect between them. Look at Thief, look at Manhunter, Heat, right down the line. Even Ali, if you think about it right, at its core, it's about the best fighter in the world, maybe the best fighter of all time, having his ability to fight taken away from him and what that does to his identity. In this film, Hathaway, he shows it right away. The first time they get him out of jail and he gets a chance to show his stuff, he shows his stuff. And then Viola Davis, who plays this FBI liaison. So good. She's really good here. Of course, she's good in everything. She elevates all the material she's in. She's skeptical of him. He probably doesn't have any feelings about her one way or the other, except we do get the moment early in the film where she's looking at some pictures of someone he's identified who might be a player in this thing. And she recognizes pretty quickly a tattoo that traces him back to a certain part of Texas. And of course, man focuses on the close-up where we see Hathaway turn his head and look at her. 
and recognize something in her, which is, oh, she knows what she's doing as well. Mm -hmm. I actually can respect her. I can work with her. This might be okay. And as it turns out, they do ID him based off of that. And so in man's films, watching people, usually men who are good at what they do, it may not appeal to everybody, but for whatever reason, man's films like Howard Hawks films to a large extent that do focus on that, they've always intrigued me. And you do get some really familiar man moments here if you are a fan of his work. There is a shootout that's undoubtedly reminiscent of the big bank heist in Heat. But it's smaller moments too, Josh, that go back to this idea of professionalism where something goes wrong because someone doesn't do their job properly. In Heat, it's when they're watching De Niro's crew taking down a job and they're waiting in the back of a truck. And there's a cop who isn't part of Pacino's gang of cops. He already says something that shows he doesn't really know exactly what he's doing. He's out of his element. He's not the professional they are. And then what does he do? He tries to sit down and he bumps, I think, his flashlight or his gun or something up against the truck. And it makes a noise. And De Niro hears it. And they know something's up. So they drop all their stuff and they take off and they get away. And here in Black Hat, they've got eyes on a key player and one cop's binoculars reflect off the guy's steel coffee pot. And in that moment, that's all that bad guy needs to see. He knows he's being watched. And in man's world, little mistakes like that have huge consequences. They they cost a lot. Yeah, don't they? This idea of professional partners, I think, is a plus and a minus in Black Hat. You're absolutely right that Viola Davis makes that connection with Hemsworth. And that relationship is one of the more intriguing ones in the film to Mm -hmm. me. You know, you get the idea. She could clearly hold her own at that table with De Niro and Pacino. For sure. No problem. I would like to see that scene. And I'd like to see Mann direct it because he seems to be broadening out here in terms of gender diversity uh, from some of his other films and including some of the women on these teams. It works for Viola Davis. Yeah. I don't think it works so much for the character who becomes the love interest played by Tong Wei. That whole thread did not work for me at all, even though she's supposed to also have hacker skills mm-hmm. and be one of these professionals. Her brother, who is actually a former student of Hathaway's, played by Wong Lee Hum. I thought they were roommates at MIT. I think you're right. Yeah, roommates. I think that relationship is strong. That's mm-hmm. another professional partnership yeah. that man really gives the sort of time and attention, and those two have a connection, and it works in the way you're talking about. So a few of those here, but unfortunately, as the film goes on, we lean more towards the love interest. The others drop away, and that was a weak point for me in the movie. Mm. Well. It gets back to heat a little bit, too. Men making choices, doing certain things to try to maybe take themselves out of their lifestyle, be more domesticated, whether or not that works or not. In this case, at least with Tong Wei, who I loved in the movie Lust Caution, the Ang Lee film, didn't really like the movie, thought she was amazing in it and was one of my favorite performances of that year. A little bit out of her element here, kind of like Gong Li in Miami Vice. Yeah. There's a sense with the English that she just can't quite hold her own and articulate some of these ideas. But man clearly doesn't care about that. And in the end, I don't know that I cared that much about no, it. No, no, I think I have had that sense in her scenes that they were unfair to her. If, mm-hmm. if what they were trying to do is set up this idea of professional partnership, that communication gap was a problem for her to make that character mm-hmm. work in that way. Let me ask you something about this film in general and man lately that definitely I was wondering how this would work out in Black Hat because it's been a trend for me since he's really started working in digital cameras. I thought it worked beautifully in collateral, almost across the board. Public Enemies, I thought was really mired in this cruddy digital camera work, didn't undermine the film 
completely. I do like that movie, but wished it had just looked better. And mm-hmm. here we get this bizarre combination of one scene that looks just pristine, just gorgeous, a, a street illuminated at night, a Hong Kong street. And we'll cut to another one where, again, it almost looks like a camera phone. And maybe the, the sequence that I would hold up that is the best example of this is when they're in a Korean restaurant waiting to meet someone. They hope to meet someone. And we get a lot of setting of the atmosphere. The reds here in the wall paint are just so rich. And the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. It's also eerie. It puts us on edge. And yep, sure enough, he gets attacked by some henchmen. And things devolve visually from there. The camera seems to switch. And it's not exactly blurry, but it's not crisp. The angles are a little chaotic. And I just can't put those two things together. And I'm wondering if now in that scene, you could make the argument, okay, violence is ugly. It makes things ugly, maybe. But throughout the film, you'll have other instances where there is a huge gap. And I'm not just saying one's pretty and one's not. It's it's more than that. And I'm trying to find if there's an aesthetic or thematic reason behind that, or it's just still working around digital technology that isn't ready for what he wants to Hmm. do. I don't know that I have a good answer for you on that juxtaposition of the pristine images or some beautiful ones, which you do get here mixed with the dingier ones. There's no doubt that that's on display. It wasn't something, for lack of a better term, that bothered me at any point with this movie. But I'm glad that you're going here with the digital shooting because that's another thing overall I really, really responded to with this film. And you touched on some of his previous digital films. I'd need to rewatch those last three movies to say this with any more authority. And I know the Miami Vicers out there are going to probably chime in and say I've got it all wrong. But I think Black Hat might be his most effective use of digital cameras. I know some people huh. love collateral and those yellow See. hues of nighttime in LA. Collateral did almost nothing for me. Wow. Public Enemies, I'm with you. I was into the Dillinger story, and there's a lot of things I liked about it. I liked it more than collateral, frankly, but the digital shooting really wasn't one of those elements, as I recall. And Miami Vice is one I just need to rewatch before I weigh in on that any further. But here, the digital cinematography, it captures two things I think are so central to the story. Proximity and pace. Just like the ones and zeros careening through the computers we see in the opening of the film when this first hack is happening, and we see it at other points throughout the movie, the characters here, they feel to me, I'll do the best I can to try to articulate the sense I got watching the movie, they feel to me like they're moving at the speed of data, especially in those fight scenes where things are a little bit blurry and chaotic. They're essentially data in the way they're here to perform a function. These characters perform a function, and there's little time in this movie to as a viewer, sit by and appreciate the aesthetic beauty of something. The digital here, for the most part, is dirty, and I think it's functional as well. And there are times, you mentioned the Korean restaurant, I didn't cue in so much to the red hues and how they maybe gave us some foreshadowing. For me, the way the digital shooting captures the walls of that restaurant or of their hotels and the window shades or the subway station they're running through, there's a blur that the digital creates, And the effect is the walls take on this texture almost of like those grid systems that you see in that computer. That's what I noticed. They feel like the insides of machines, and they are caught inside those machines, just like those little pieces that we see moving are. And there's something, too, about just that handheld sense of people almost on the street could be shooting this in real time with their cameras. People are running down the street, there's a shootout, and yet somehow people are capturing it with their phones the way we see everyone do on YouTube these days. 
it feels voyeuristic in a way that just seems totally appropriate to this material and heightens the immediacy of it. That's a good argument. I don't know if I'm convinced by it, but the, I can see I can see that take. It's sort of a verite sensibility yeah. that I guess for me was at odds with the type of story this was telling. Again, this this is a pretty trite narrative in terms sure. of techno thrillers, and it's trying to be slick, essentially, and, and to then have it juxtaposed with this grimy visual scheme, I guess, just didn't work. I'm, I'm at the exact opposite with you. I find aesthetic reasoning in the use of the digital cameras for collateral, just because that's a movie that it's almost like the fluorescent lights we see at night. It's a film that takes place entirely at night that dominate the nighttime that we we don't really like still the movie at times makes it beautiful but also just gives us that edgy uncomfortable yeah, feeling there's something a little sinister there's, about it yeah sinister that's a good word so for me there's a much better match to it in collateral than here in black hat open your eyes what'd you say you talk like you're still in prison but you're not in prison get your thinking to where you are not where you've what do you know about where i've been no, nothing. No, nothing. But okay, tell me, well, what is it I'm supposed to start seeing so fast? Where you are. What, Koreatown? This restaurant, this table, what? <laughs> You'll be in the rapid stream of decision-making. Having to make intuitive choices, people against you are high-speed, world-class, dangerous. To be genius coder, to outsmart. I'll think like my brother always said you could. You have to think about it. Not easy. I know. There's no transition time. But I believe you're a very strong man, very smart man. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film from Michael Mann that almost certainly nobody out there listening right now actually went to see based on its box office take. Maybe we can convince you otherwise. In terms of that question I posed to you about why it may not work for people. I think one of the reasons, I don't know why people didn't go to it initially, but maybe why people aren't returning to it or sending their friends, the word of mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it is there's no doubt that the audio is mixed really weirdly. And I've checked with one or two people. It wasn't just my theater. It's something man is playing with. It's mixed in a way that there are conversations going on. I'm not talking just about how sometimes he fades out of conversations Mm -hmm. or fades into conversations, but there are conversations that are just almost inaudible. I have to say it, it's almost like you're watching a porn movie in terms of the Hmm. quality of dialogue sometimes. Like, it was dubbed in after, and it's not really essential to what's going on in a lot of conversations. Sometimes the lips don't even seem to be syncing up. And It's a surveillance technique, right? It's, it's, uh, you know, I guess that would be my response when I heard it. It's kind of like, you're not right there, but you're listening in. Yeah, I think that is a great case. I also think that the fades, they did work for me in a sense, because with apologies to the screenwriter, Morgan Davis Full, who you already said this movie is kind of full of cliches. Who knows if those were all cliches to begin with, or Michael Mann chose to kind of strip it down to that. But after this one cliched scene where the hero hooks up with the love interest that we all expect, and it's coming any minute, we get the scene that should also be the cliche follow-up to the love scene, where they're laying in bed And he provides some insight 
into his life and who he is. And he starts talking about his dad. And I immediately started thinking about a movie like Thief, where James Caan is in the diner with Tuesday Weld. And he talks about this altercation with prison guards and what it says about this brutal world we live in and how you survive in it. And it lays out his whole worldview. There's a scene similar to that, actually, in this movie as well. But I do love here that Tong Wei actually negates everything he says, unlike the thief version of this. But in this scene, he's talking about his father. And Michael Mann just sort of decides, I'm ducking out of this scene. I'm going to get you about two <laughs> lines into it. And as an audience member, you start to think you're going to get some nugget of wisdom, something you can really latch onto. And Mann says, this really isn't that important. In the grand scheme of things, I feel as if, and again, I'm probably reaching a little bit here to make it tie in, but it's almost the sense of noise. It's noise, just like all this digital noise. They are, and the information they're sharing is pieces of code, and you can detect it, and you can assign meaning to it if you want, or don't assign meaning to it. Well, yeah, in the, in the scheme of this narrative, their exchange is worthless as data. Right. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think, no, I think that's there because one of the things that may be a slight commentary is the amount of emphasis he gives, his camera gives, to actual screens. That There is so much here. It's There's almost more than human faces. And I think what's being implied there and maybe also being implied in that moment of human interaction that's cut mm-hmm. short is that people don't matter anymore. The computers matter. That's the important thing here. And, yeah. and it is sort of what we come to learn. So so there is that to kind of uh, latch onto. And, and I also, you know, I do want to find reasons to encourage people to check this out and give it a shot, because if you do pause to really look at what's going on, even if it's another cliched moment, the Michael Bay moment of these determined group of men walking across a tarmac, yeah. occasionally in slow motion, it, it would be very interesting to watch that right Man's version, right alongside Bay's, mm-hmm. because just experiencing the man one and working from my memory of Bay's stuff, there's something hypnotic about the way man manages to give that 30 seconds or whatever it is. It's something to do with the way the backgrounds will be in focus yeah. rather than the figure in the foreground mm-hmm. and how and, you know, that's a trick that Bay does, too. I think maybe what it is is the segueing in between the techniques right. has a delicacy. Uh, man gives it a delicacy that Bay's work doesn't have so that even moving from a slow motion shot of someone's hair blowing in the wind, how you move back to regular motion and what, what insert shot we get next. Uh, there's a, a level of intricacy to it in this film. That's the sort of thing we don't get in all of those other techno thrillers that on the surface look mm-hmm. the same, but we do get here. And an even better scene, because it's a little more original, is the climax, which we shouldn't give away. Cliched because it takes place in a street festival, some mm-hmm. sort of religious parade, right? That's where all these movies end somehow. And semi-absurdly. There's no doubt about it. Of course. <laughs> how long it goes on yeah. and what's happening and how, and no how everyone's seems, oblivious. No one seems to react. Yes. But in a way, man uses that just enough to give it this sort of poetry. All of the revelers are in these red robes, red again, and uh, Hemsworth is in pursuit of his adversary. He's in a khaki jacket, and there's just this beautiful moment where he slips into the stream of these revelers in pursuit of this guy, and I didn't notice it at first. You know, you're you're awash in what's across the screen, all this red, and you're taking that in, and then you just notice from the right, he sort of slips in, Mm -hmm. and it's just, you know, it's evocative of the idea of a hacker just infiltrating, and it's, again, 10 seconds, but 10 better seconds than you'd get in another movie Mm -hmm. tackling this subject 
for 90 minutes. Yeah. And what you said about Bay, you use the right word. It's a trick. It is there to be largely about looking cool. And I don't think that man is really interested in that at all. As much as these movies come off as very macho, it really doesn't reflect that in some of those rhythmic choices and some of those visual choices you're talking about. There's a real sense in some of those shots that could be cool of mystery and sort of something being a little yeah, bit mystery off. is a good word. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I respond to in those scenes. And two, you talk about the end of this film without spoiling too much as well. I'll just add that in terms of word of mouth and people maybe being confounded by this movie, just think about the raw violence that we get and yeah. the motivations of the characters to do what they do. This storyline or this basic setup of someone helping the FBI or whatever to thwart some big plot and the reasons why they do it and how it plays out, it doesn't play out in this movie like that at all. There is nothing altruistic about it. And so just this sort of framework that based on the beginning of the film and how all the cliches sort of start to align, you think it's going one direction. It doesn't end up going that direction at all, which is something I really appreciate. And look, I know a lot of people out there probably did actually see the movie, and they're probably a guess that we're praising this movie, or at least I'm praising this movie as much as I did, because I think I did like it a little bit more than you. There are those moments, not just the cliches, but there are some of the cons in the movie that they have to pull off in order to get into a certain system or whatever that are so crazy and ridiculous they make Ocean's Eleven look like a documentary. You know, there you are. Would, you wouldn't be talking about the NSA guy who is convinced to click on the suspicious Right, document. to give up his password. Yeah. Actually, yes. I was thinking of that and the one where they go to this huge international bank and the, the oh, spilled yeah. coffee on the papers yes. <laughs> somehow allows them to just plug an external drive into the system so they can access it. There's a lot of things like that that really just don't add up. In a movie, as we've said, that's all about professionalism, how you do your job, some of those things don't quite wash. And I do think there are some shootout scenes. As much as I love certain shootout scenes in this movie, there are others that you see characters behaving in a way that just doesn't seem to There's fit that with their gap. character at all. You yeah. know, it, it's that gap again in control that, that's just hard to figure out when you do see 10 seconds of mastery and then followed by something that's, you yeah. know, just kind of average at best. At that moment where Tong Wei and Chris Hemsworth started kissing each other on the balcony, a oh. guy in front of me actually burst out laughing. Oh, so I, I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel that way. And you know what? I was expecting it. The movie had set me up for it, so it didn't really bother me in the way I might have been normally bothered. There's also a scene later, which I'll dance around because I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a moment where that character, the love interest, hands something to Chris Hemsworth. And the movie makes a big deal. It draws attention to the fact that she's giving them something that belongs to her. And it stands out for a reason I'll get to in a moment. You realize later in the film that the movie needs them to be in a certain place yes. and the movie needs them to be in that place. Yes. And it requires what she handed them. But you go back and you think about it and you're like, the reason it stood out is because the movie never established in the first place that that was hers. It's like <laughs> it felt the need to set us up for something that it never really prepared us for in the first place. It just stands out as one of those kind of hacky moments few, where maybe something was cut. Hat, yeah. I don't know what it was. I know I'm sounding very vague with this, but there is just one of these moments where you're sitting there thinking, why did they bother to show me that? Oh, of course, it's going to come into play later. Few too many moments like that in Black Hat. Not enough to overall take away from my experience. If you've seen Black Hat and agree or disagree with us, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. I also did want to mention, speaking of Black Hat, that Mubi, our partner, they have an online magazine called The Notebook, and this week they've got a feature exploring Michael Mann's Black Hat in pretty good detail. It's 
a piece written by critic and filmmaker Rylan Walker Knight. It's interesting stuff. I do recommend it. You can find the link to that article in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. Are film spotting listeners more eager to see the new Star Wars or the new Tarantino? We'll have the results of the film spotting poll when we come back. I wonder if Tarantino was considered for the new Star Wars. He certainly would have employed Samuel L. Jackson better than Lucas did. Oh, I'll even agree with you on that. Plus, we'll also have part two of our 2015 movie preview. Stay with us. shaking people up but now i want to go at it more and i want to go at it more deliberately and i want to go at it coldly i want i want to shake people up so bad that when they leave a nightclub where i performed i i just want them to be to pieces if early reports from park city are to be believed she did not disappoint welcome back to film spotting nina simone there from one of two films that opened the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. It's called What Happened, Miss Simone, from director Liz Garbus. Opening night at Sundance has been a good one for music-related docs and features recently. Previous opening night films include the Oscar-winning documentary Searching for Sugar Man and 20 Feet from Stardom. And last year's opening night feature, a little movie, been talked about once or twice here on the show, called Whiplash. Josh, you weren't there for opening night, but you are headed to Park City for a couple days. My Park City days seem to be behind me with my schedule, sadly. I haven't been in three tried, or four years. Tried to get you to come along. But this is but your first time going. I, my first time. I can't wait. We're going to get your report on the fest next week. Do you want to share anything at this point about your plans? I will share a little bit about my plans when we get to our top five. Okay. Our most anticipated things about the coming year, our questions about the coming year, cover that. Cover Sundance there. Really, your question is, will I get any good skiing in? Yes, that's that's my priority, really, the skiing. <laughs> Also, if you subscribe to the Film Spotting podcast, something you may already know, we have people listening on the radio, many people downloading the show, of course, via iTunes and other pod-catching services. After a year hiatus, we've returned to our semi-regular explorations of overlooked auteurs or overlooked regions of world cinema and other cinematic oversights and, frankly, embarrassments. We really stretched the definition of semi-regular last That's true. year, didn't we? Oh, yeah. We certainly did. But we're back. We're, we're back. back. We are back with a vengeance. We call them the Film Spotting Marathon, something we've been doing since very early in the show's run. Goes back to the first year of the show, 2005. Josh, since you joined the show in 2012, we've had marathons devoted to Robert Brisson, contemporary Iranian cinema, black exploitation, the Marx Brothers, Max Ophuls, and contemporary Korean auteurs. Starting this week, we're diving into the work of Indian auteur Satyajit Ray. 
You can find the whole lineup on the Marathon's page over at filmspotting.net. And that's also where you can find our conversation about the first film in the Marathon, Padre Panchali. We did something a little different. We thought at least for this first one, we'll see if people like it don't like it. Maybe we'll go back to putting the marathons in the show proper, but we thought we'd give this a shot, see how people respond to having the marathon as a separate episode, basically, that you can choose to download or can skip if it's something you just can't participate in at this time. We hope you will, though. As opposed to having it as part of a five and a half hour show. Right. Right. That is something we're we're concerned with from time to time, though, in fairness, and now I'm just inviting these criticisms. No one really complains about the length of the show. That's true. The length of the podcast can get a little bit out there, not normal for radio, pushing that 90-minute, 100-minute mark. But we thought we would go ahead and make that a separate episode. And you can find that, of course, again, if you haven't already, via iTunes or our website, filmspotting.net. I know you mean well. You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. There's only one path to peace. Your extinction. Speaking of most anticipated movies of 2015, Josh, I cannot wait for the sequel to Pretty in Pink. That's the unmistakable sound of James Spader's stuff, right? It's about time. His alter ego, Ultron. <laughs> I understand some Marvel superheroes also make an appearance in the film. It is, of course, called Avengers Age of Ultron. Hey, if they have a little psychedelic furs on the soundtrack, yeah. that wouldn't be bad. <laughs> I think if you're going to have a bad guy based on Steph, we need an Avenger who's named Blaine, <laughs> just like Andrew McCarthy. Marvel will get Or it. Ducky. Even better, Ducky. Yeah, that would be cool. John Cryer needs to be in an Avengers movie. Last time we shared a poll with you, we were previewing our 2015 preview. We asked you this simple question. You can only see one. It's a 2015 deathmatch. Avengers, Age of Ultron, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, or Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Josh. How did it come out? Avengers, Age of Ultron, sans Ducky. This is probably why it came yes. in last place. 13%, unfortunately. Second place went to Tarantino's The Hateful Eight with 35%. Clear winner here, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, 52% of the vote. Now, I knew there were a lot of Tarantino fans out there listening. I really thought Star Wars was going to run away with this to the tune of 70 to 80%, though. So that 35% surprises me a little bit. What about you? Well, I guess... Where's the crossover? The crossover is more people who would be both Tarantino and Star Wars. You'd think. You would think. So, yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. This is about where I expected. Okay. Brian Finch, he says, I'm a bit incredulous that this is an actual poll question. <laughs> we have to upset someone or it's not a good death match. <laughs> who the hell would pick a movie other than Star Wars? Also, the new Tarantino movie doesn't feel like it belongs in the question, but rather an afterthought to appease those who are uninterested in awesome films involving the Millennium Falcon. Don't take me wrong. I love Quint. But his film is not going to be a blockbuster. It is not science fiction. It is not nerdy. And it doesn't belong on this list. Our deepest apologies, Brian. <laughs> we did throw it in, not as an afterthought, but to try to make it more interesting because we knew if we pitted Avengers right. versus Star Wars, that would that be a bloodbath. That would be 95 to 5%. So that just didn't seem interesting enough, although it did seem maybe a little bit more connected. Also heard from Jack D. He's here in Chicago. I've been waiting 32 years to watch the Millennium Falcon fly again. And George Lucas's recent quote that the only thing he regrets about Star Wars is the fact that he, quote, never got to see it, never got to be blown out of my seat when the ship came over the screen, is the exact reason why it's good he didn't direct Episode 7. He never experienced the phenomenon of being blown away watching the movie. So let's get a director who was blown away to try to replicate our first experience with Star Wars. Whatever gives you hope, Jack. It's an is, interesting theory. And isn't, see, for me, that's part of the concern with Abrams is 
he'll package it nice and shiny and serve it up as nostalgia. But don't we want a little bit more? A little bit? Maybe. Yeah, but know. he's a pretty good filmmaker. He is. He is. So I agree with that. Okay. Jennifer Eckstein here in Elmhurst. Like the others commenting here, I'm old enough to have seen every Star Wars film on the big screen. I also have a five-year-old son who discovered Star Wars a year ago and has turned into a huge fan. While I love Tarantino, I'm really looking forward to taking my son to his first Star Wars big screen experience. Not only will it be a terrific bonding moment, I'm thrilled to share this cultural mecca with the next generation of fans. The Star Wars release may actually be the highlight of my 2015. Yeah, so that references the cultural event idea that, mm-hmm. that was also appealed to both of us. Larry in Austin, Texas, he cast a vote for Tarantino. The clear choice is Tarantino. He says, sorry, Star Wars fans, but the odds are against you. A franchise with a 50% hit rate at best, a story which was fresh four decades ago now seems trite. A movie studio more interested in business results than compelling storytelling, and do I even have to say it? It's a freaking sequel. I would bet the entire film spotting coffers that at the end of the day, episode seven will go down in history as just another quickly forgotten CGI extravaganza. I just don't think so. Maybe I trust Abrams too much. I just don't think that's going to be the case. And even the prequels, which just about everyone hates, are not forgotten. They're not forgotten. (laughs) We've tried. Right? (laughs) Lord knows we've tried. Andy from Chicago, you're asking me to choose between two multi-billion dollar commercial franchises and the latest film from one of my favorite living filmmakers. Easiest poll question ever, sir. So take that, Brian Yeah, see? What would Andy have done, Brian, if we hadn't offered Hateful Eight? Stevie Ocero wrote in from Albuquerque, New Mexico. The 31-year-old, gainfully employed adult in me just can't care about a sequel to the adequate at best Avengers. The scrawny 12-year-old nerd in me is super totes excited about the new Star Wars. But... It is the pretentious 21-year-old college junior film snob in me that wins here. Any new QT film will always jump to the top of my must-see list. Well, our target audience here is the pretentious 21-year-old college junior (laughs) film snob in you, so... That's good to see that that won out. Sam Vargan, Martinez, California, writes, I probably am only going to see one of these, and that's The Hateful Eight. I'm 18, so I didn't really grow up with Star Wars and have never had the affinity for it that so many do. And I don't know about you guys, but I think these Marvel movies have overstayed their welcome. I'm not convinced I'm going to love Quentin's next movie, but I'm always looking forward to whatever he does. So bring on The Hateful Eight. One more here. It's from Andrew A. in Chattanooga. This is really the best note to go out on, I think. Andrew says... They can all go to hell. I'll be first in line to see Michael Fassbender and Rachel Weisz team up with Derek C. in France for The Light Between Oceans. Can you imagine how Brian would have responded if we included The Light Between Oceans in the death match? <laughs> he might have sworn. He might have. Which brings us to this week's poll question. Hopefully, we'll get you to swear over it. We look ahead a couple weeks to our pre-Oscar extravaganza show. We're going to share our Oscar picks. Who will win? Who should win? Mr. Michael Phillips will join us. Plus, with Clint Eastwood's American Sniper currently a juggernaut at the box office and an unfortunate, though probably inevitable, source of partisan bickering, we've decided to give the sacred cow treatment to Eastwood's 1992 Oscar-winning masterpiece, Well, at least that's what most of us think. We'll see if it holds up. Unforgiven. So our poll question this week, a referendum of sorts on Eastwood. We're asking you, what is Clint Eastwood's best film? Your choices are Bird, Letters from Iwo Jima, Million Dollar Baby, Mystic River. Then we're going to jump back a ways. The Outlaw, Josie Wales, Unforgiven. And we will offer other. We have to. I'm sure people have their personal favorites. Yeah, because we gave you six choices. And at least according to Letterboxd, he's made 35 movies as a director, of course, many more if you count his work as an actor. And I don't know if I even have the right to weigh in on this. How many films, what percentage of a director's films, Josh, do you think you need to have seen in order to weigh in on his quality as a filmmaker and also weigh in on what his best film is? Uh, Let me make sure this is a poll on the Internet, correct? Yes. Zero percent. Okay. 
can't argue with that. And I'm glad you said that. That means I can weigh in here because well, I was looking at Letterbox again. 35 credits as a director. I've seen 16. That's 52. percent I'm over the 50 percent mark. Over the 50 percent mark. I think. I think maybe just being over 50% qualifies me. Sure. Why I don't not? know. I did a little better than that. You I'm did? At 19 of his films. Okay. I didn't do the math. But I do have Letterboxd some oversights. Letterboxd does the math for me. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I'll have to try that. <laughs> <laughs> there are some oversights, though, significant ones that yes. I have not seen that I probably should before I would vote in something like this. I haven't seen Bird, and I haven't seen The Outlaw Josie Wales, two options we offered. Oh, yeah. See, I've seen everything that we offered up as choices. My notable oversights are High Plains Drifter, Pale Rider, and I know there is a lot of affection out there for A Perfect World, the Kevin Costner movie. I've only seen that in bits and pieces on HBO over the years, but never sat down, watched it all the way through. Huge fan of A Perfect World. But I saw it, I think I was in college when it came out. Have not seen it since, but I remember it being really moving, really well handled. Would love to revisit that one. So if you had to vote right now, your expert opinion, having seen 19 of his films, where are you going? Well, it wouldn't be a perfect world, despite what I just said. Unforgiven is my instinct, mm-hmm. though I would like to rewatch Mystic River and give that consideration as well. If I had to vote now, I'd go to Unforgiven, though, which will make it interesting when we get to that down the road. Yeah. We are going to do that Sacred Cow review and see how it does hold up. Mm-hmm. I would probably go Unforgiven as well, but would be a tight choice with the outlaw Josie Wales. All Big right. fan of that movie. So we will see what happens when we get to Unforgiven in a few weeks. And we're hoping that observant listeners... Remember, back in April of last year, we asked you to help us choose a Sacred Cow review for an episode we were going to devote to our top five films of 1992. That was sort of next up in our year-by-year countdowns. And that's a show we have somehow failed to get to We were doing all those marathons. All those marathons, right. (laughs) In that poll, Unforgiven faced off against Quentin Tarantino's debut. And speaking of Sundance, it was a Sundance sensation, Reservoir Dogs. Unforgiven. I went back and looked. Sam isn't crazy here when he wrote this down. Unforgiven did win that poll in a squeaker, 51% to 49%. So we asked you, which one do you want us to talk about? Just barely, Unforgiven beat out Tarantino there. Though, Josh, maybe you remember our 500th show, our live show at the Music Box. We threw the question out when we shared those results to the live audience. Decidedly pro-Quint. Yeah, well. But they didn't get the actual votes in the poll question like everyone did online. So we are going to talk Unforgiven in a couple of weeks. But here's the thing. Everybody wins. We're still going to do that top five of 1992 at some point in the coming months. We're going to save the Reservoir Dogs Sacred Cow for that show. I like it. You can vote now in our current Clint Eastwood poll question at filmspotting.net. And as always, if you leave us a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. While we're talking about Clint Eastwood and listener feedback, We have been getting some good American Sniper stuff coming into the mailbag. And, of course, I can say that because so far everybody agrees with me. (laughs) Yes. So it's really good. I've been defending myself. You've been trying. You've been doing very well. I've been biding my time, sitting back, and we're going to get into it in future bonus content, probably next week's bonus content. I'm just waiting for a little support. Well, this is kind of why I did this, because I knew it'd sort of be like Interstellar when I curse myself by saying, surprisingly, everyone agrees with me. And then the deluge started and everybody uh-huh. was on your side. I'm sure some people are going to come out in defense of American Sniper. It's, it's the silent majority that I have behind me, Adam, generally on these things. <laughs> I'd love it if they just stayed silent. But you know what? That doesn't make for compelling listener feedback. If you want to hear that listener feedback, you can access our bonus content in the Film Spotting app. All the information you need is at filmspotting.net and click on apps as we're putting off American Sniper for a week. This week, we're going to share responses going back to 
maybe November, Josh. It was episode 511, I think, where we reviewed Whiplash and shared our top five mentor protégés on screen. So we've got some really good thoughts from Jill in L.A., Jillian in Wellesley, Massachusetts, Eli in New York City, Andy in St. Paul, and many others. Again, we'll get to that in the bonus content. Il n'a pas pu faire de nous des humbles. Qui ça Ou pas su, ou pas voulu. Alors, il a fait de nous des humiliés. No, it's not Larson recommends. There's no theme music, just people speaking French, which most people listening probably can't decipher. And then you can appreciate just how I felt watching Goodbye to Language 3D, the latest film from Jean-Luc Godard. Speaking of credits over at Letterboxd and IMDb, do you know how many Godard has on IMDb? So Eastwood had 35? Yes. Was it? Uh, 50. 117. So that counts shorts, too, then? I <laughs> yeah, they usually do. Okay, okay. Nevertheless, 117, a staggering number. Letterboxd has 104, so they don't give full credit to everything that IMDb does. But of those 104 on you're, Letterboxd? You're at negative 0.8%. Six. Six good art films. I would scoff, Six. but I bet I'm right around there. Yeah. And I bet they're all pre-1970. like Well, that's exactly right. The most recent Godard film I've seen, 1968. There you go. Sympathy for the Devil, his bizarre political documentary about the Rolling Stones and the making of that song and that album, Weekend Before That in 1967. So I've got no contemporary perspective to put goodbye to language in. Haven't seen King Lear or JLG, JLG or Notre Musique or Histoire du Cinema. If you want that perspective, certainly encourage you to read Richard Brody in The New Yorker or several other critics who can offer it to you. Not just the perspective on Godard, but probably a wiser perspective on cinema in general than me. But if you check out that Brody piece, he accurately describes goodbye to language as kind of a collage, a compilation of images and sounds, incidents and phrases that don't tell only one story, but bring lots of stories together. So this movie is so narrative-free, it makes your beloved documentary Leviathan look like a screwball comedy from Hollywood in the 40s or 50s. I believe that because there were all those compelling mini-narratives in there, (laughs) remember? It's basically a Rorschach test. I think whatever Hmm. you want Goodbye to Language to be, it can be for you. Our friend Peter Labuza saw it on Letterboxd as soon as I logged this movie in my diary. His review, he says, through the use of 3D flip cams, Godard proposes that a total cinema is simply a total realism. In essence, this is a film that introduces us to the image without language or metaphor. It is instead the image of pure reality and thus pure freedom. Another friend of ours, David Ehrlich, says his most exhilarating film since 1987's King Lear, Goodbye to Language is a bombastically complicated screed against reality, but one that doesn't ask to be solved so much as it demands to be seen. So is it reflecting reality? Is it a diatribe against reality? Is it both? I don't know, Josh. What I do know is that it's 70 minutes of the most provocative use of 3D I've certainly seen. Even more provocative in that it's utilizing 3D to capture arguably the most mundane of daily occurrences and moments. And of course, that stands in stark contrast to how we're used to seeing 3D on screen, where it's usually going hand in hand with very complex CGI and trying to capture things or show things to us that don't maybe really exist. What you get here is the shot of a street, but maybe the street is on kind of the second plane and the first plane is a chair or something else immediately in the foreground. Then there are houses behind the street and then light posts and trees behind the houses and then more houses behind that. 
there are several sequences and individual shots in Goodbye to Language that are six or seven or eight planes deep. So it's fully utilizing the depth that 3D can offer. And it is this word visceral. We talk about it. Sometimes it gets thrown around a little too much. But I felt it, this kind of instinctive response where sometimes I even felt myself recoiling a little bit from some of the images that you see. There's one instance where, actually a couple instances, where he does this sort of superimposition where it feels like you're seeing double. You know, you look at a lamp on a table in a room where a couple is having a conversation and then the camera pans and it goes to one of the people talking and the lamp stays in the shot somehow in the frame. It's superimposed. And there were a couple instances there where I had to actually take my 3D glasses off because it was too much. It was too visceral in that moment to take in. As far as the narrative goes, if you can call it that, there are recurring characters. There's a couple, there's their dog, and at the risk of simplifying it and trying to read too much into the title, you can't deny that there's a sense that Godard is saying that we've become so attached to technology. He's maybe making the grand philosophical statements that Black Hat only hinted at and didn't really want to get into. This sense that we're so detached from reality and each other that we are completely disconnected. We might as well be speaking foreign languages to each other all the time. And the use of imagery, I think, heightens that disconnection and perhaps tries by the end of it to reestablish that connection a little bit. I don't think in 520 plus shows, Josh, I've ever said a movie would be better if it was shorter. That's one of my least favorite criticisms to read from anybody. But Goodbye to Language is unlike any movie I've reviewed in 520 plus shows or any movie at all I've talked about. And I'll admit that if it was 100 minutes of sensory overload, it might be too much. I might be less inclined to encourage people to see it. But 70 minutes watching an old master employ a new technology in a way nobody else has, I don't think you should pass up that opportunity. It's playing here in Chicago at the Gene Siskel Film Center. So, yeah, that was my question about it, because my reservation was similar to yours in that I wanted to have some sense, especially these more theoretical essay films he's been making yeah. lately of how it fit into the context of that. But to me, it sounds like you don't have to have that. I don't think you do. In order to I'd probably least, get more out of it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But but on its own as an experience, there's plenty there for someone that shouldn't hold you back, I guess, is what I'm asking. That's exactly right. It is an experience, and it is playing, as I said, here at the Gene Siskel Film Center in 3D. They had to install special projectors I was just for the about 3D. That, yeah. yeah, and the 3D glass is a little bit fancier than the standard fare you get at the multiplex, Josh. So you can look forward to that experience as well. I will. All right. Despite last week when we listed our most anticipated movies of 2015, so many questions about the year do remain, including whether a top five segment will ever come in under 20 minutes. Oh, I've got an answer to that one. <laughs> We'll share part two of our 2015 movie preview when we come back. Stay with us. Cheek. 
the sounds of Washington, D.C.'s X-Hex, led by indie rock vet Mary Timoney from their 2014 album Rips. They're heading out on a European tour in February, starting in London on February 10th, and then they're going to return to the States in April for dates in New York City, Boston, Providence, and Philly. If you like what you hear, more information at xhexband.com. Josh, let's get to some donations and some thank yous, including a brand new $10 a month donation coming to us from the very generous Stephen Miller in Escondido, California. Stephen sent us some great feedback on American Sniper. I think that's the stuff we're going to get into on bonus content here in a couple weeks. Stephen says, I wanted to thank you for putting out these reviews each week. As a robotics grad student and startup co-founder, free time is in scarce supply. Like a long international flight, movies offer me a particular joy, to be forced for two hours to sit and feel. Discussions like yours turn that solitary act into something more communal. They've even inspired me to start throwing my own reviews out into the ether. With the exception of Birdman, my best of 2014 list reads more or less like a Frankenstein of things you've championed. So you championed that movie a little bit. I obviously didn't. And we'll link to Steven's list of his best films of the year. Other than Birdman being way too high, I think he had it at number three. A pretty solid list from Steven. Thank you for that donation. I remember so fondly my days as a robotics grad student. (laughs) didn't last long no huh? i just you know i movies they they called to me yes. and i had to drop it so i had such a gift for it though five dollar a month donation comes to us from Alyssa rock in springville utah just letting you know that i'm signing up as a five dollar a month subscriber i want to dedicate my donations to the local film club i run in salt lake city called the citizens of kane your show influences a lot of what we decide to go see and discuss every month thanks to this film club i actually saw most of your top picks this year which makes the podcast even more enjoyable we talk about a lot of the joys we get from our listeners that they get from this show and over the years hearing about different film clubs that spring up like the one in springville like the one in tufnell park Mm -hmm. in london that gives me a particular pleasure and that's one of the best names i've heard for a film club, The Citizens of Kane. Oh, it's I like really that. good. It's really good. Thank you, Alyssa. Other donations this week, Nicholas in Hawthorne Woods, Illinois, and Sarah Arnoden, longtime supporter of the show, who says, Happy birthday to my husband, Edwin. He makes my days sweeter than a Mendel's pastry and is more precious to me than any painting, even Boy with Apple. I don't know wow. what she's talking about, Josh. Can you <laughs> decipher that for me? Oh, yeah. You, you speak know. Anderson. That's Anderson language. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you, and happy birthday to Edwin. This is a regular occurrence. I really hope Edwin gets something better, maybe like a pastry, than just these donations. I feel really bad for him, but he's been also a longtime supporter of the show, and it's very sweet. So thank you for that. One other quick note, something else we'll link to in our show notes, Josh. The International Online Film Critics Poll announced its winners for the fourth annual, actually the fourth biannual awards for excellence in film. So this was started in 2007. It looks at films in two-year increments. Okay. And hands out some awards, and it's international because they pull critics from all over. The U.S., U.K., Italy, Spain, there's like 20 countries here. I was one of the critics who got asked to participate in this poll in the final selection process, and we'll link to it. As I said, if you're curious what came out, the big winners, Wes Anderson and the Grand Budapest Hotel got a lot of love, including one category I think I actually voted for it, which was Best Ensemble. Well, there you go. That yeah, makes which sense. is hard to go against. Boyhood winning Best Picture from the International Online Film Critics Poll. This is Craig Brewer, the director of Black Snake Moan, and you're listening to Film Spotting.
Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. This is part two of our 2015 movie preview. We started this last year where rather than just talking about the movies we were most excited to see, we talk about some of those other things we were most excited mm-hmm. to see in 2015. And one of the things that sort of unfolded organically as I was going through my list is I realized, Josh, that what I was really coming up with was questions. The big question marks for me, personally, of 2015. I threw that out to you. Fortunately, you were willing to play ball. So we've got, we've got five of our questions that highlight some of those things we're really anticipating this year. I don't know about you, but I did skip any movie that made last week's top five, the most anticipated movies of the year. And the only other problem I found in forming this list after coming up with that conceit is that I feel like we should probably be talking about bigger picture questions, maybe trends of 2015, whatever it might be, rather than what you're going to get, which are these kind of really specific personal lists. But that's what our top five lists have always been about, and we're sticking with it. Yeah, I mean, that gives you a chance to talk about the details. I stuck to that. And these are questions because the things that you're most anticipating are often the things you're most curious about, Mm -hmm. and they can go either way. So my number five is something I really have no instinct as to how this will go, but I do want to see how it turns out. And that is, how will Colin Trevorrow handle the big budget and massive scale of Jurassic World? That's a great question. I mean, I I was actually mixed on Trevorrow's feature debut, Safety Not Guaranteed. That was about an eccentric played by Mark Duplass, who takes out a classified ad looking for a time travel partner. You liked it quite a bit more than I did, Adam, and you actually interviewed Trevorrow Mm -hmm. about the film. Now, one of the reasons I didn't really go for it was it felt to me like it was in low gear, and especially once the sci-fi elements really came into play at the end of Safety Not Guaranteed. That could, however, I'm wondering if that could be the key for making Jurassic World something other than this you know, rock'em sock'em blockbuster that's just a bludgeoning of the audience, which we do get plenty of, and instead some sort of franchise installment that has idiosyncrasy, has personality, yeah. safety not guaranteed, which also starred Aubrey Plaza. It and certainly don't had Jake that. Johnson. I, I was not try gonna, not to. Josh. I was not going to bring that up. We're still waiting for him to take over cinema, aren't we, Adam? Wasn't well, that supposed to happen by now? Give him time. Give him time. <laughs> I think a model for Jurassic World may be last year's Godzilla, perhaps, yeah. because the director there was Gareth Edwards. And before taking that gargantuan project, he had a smaller film, Monsters, similarly themed, but much smaller budget. And he made a leap essentially from Indies to Hollywood, big time. Now, other people are probably just excited that Jurassic Park is back. Chris or, Pratt. Speaking of people who are taking over the world, this will be Chris Pratt's world domination picture, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. Me, I'm just curious of how Trevor is going to handle it. Yeah, I did like Safety Not Guaranteed more than you, but it wasn't for me a top 10 or 20 movie of right. the year by any stretch. So it's not that. It's exactly what you said. It's this notion that he might bring some kind of idiosyncrasy and some kind of personality to this big budget spectacle that has me genuinely curious. Whereas if he wasn't attached to it or some other director that was similar in some ways or that I cared about, I would not care about this movie at all. I'm sorry. I do love Jurassic Park. I think we talked about that at one point a few years ago or part of a Spielberg show. The other two, I actually didn't even see the third one. I have to admit the second one really wasn't into. So I normally wouldn't care about the fourth installment in this series, but because of him, I do. Right. You're you're absolutely right. If it was someone who had done a few eh, action films, Completely off my radar. This is what makes it interesting. I'm going to stick with big budget spectacles for my number five question of 2015. And that question is, can Channing Tatum play a character 
and I have character in quotes there. The movie is Jupiter Ascending. And of course, Josh, I'm a broken record about this. I think I brought it up just a couple weeks ago. I don't remember what the film was, but I go on and on about actors and actresses who I think should just never try to play capital C characters, whether it's funny voices, goofy accessories. Basically, they try to be Johnny Depp, though I don't even like those Johnny Depp films, but he can pull that off for the most part. Physical ailments or tics, supernatural figures, whatever it might be. Basically, if you're a trained British stage actor, go for it. Everybody else, don't bother. Hollywood movie stars should stick to being Hollywood movie stars. I'm sorry. And Josh, anyone who listens to the show regularly knows that I'm a Channing Tatum fan. I'm still dining out on calling him my number one up-and-coming actor way back in 2006, long before Magic Mike and some of these other movies. But when I read Channing Tatum plays a genetically engineered albino warrior with wolf (laughs) DNA, I get really, really nervous. He's never strayed too far outside of playing Channing Tatum on screen, whatever we perceive Channing Tatum to be. Foxcatcher may be the closest to a departure for him in terms of, as we talked about, really reducing his sort of natural charisma on screen and that confidence. Watching the trailer for this, and this is the new film from the Wachowski siblings, the good news is his appearance doesn't seem to be too drastically altered. It's hard to see. The trailer goes by very quickly. There aren't any static shots of him, but he's got maybe some highlights to his hair, a goatee, might have some contacts in. Oh, yes, he does also have some Vulcan-type ears. The bad news is, beyond the ears, that his accent does seem to be lost in sci-fi land. I'm a genetically engineered albino warrior with wolf DNA, so I can't sound like the dude from 22 Jump Street, (laughs) but I also can't actually do any voice except for the guy from 22 Jump Street. What am I going to do? British. Are those flying boots? They use the force of gravity, redirecting it into differential equations that you can serve. Yeah, I heard gravity and surf. Up is hard, down is easy. Vaguely British. And that is <laughs> How did I what know? he ends up being. It's like me in Massacre Theater, where every voice sounds not only vaguely Wait, British, but feminine. Too? Yes, somehow. No, he's not. But he does have the vaguely British part down. Still, the visuals, as you might expect, if you haven't already gotten excited about this movie and watched the trailer, they look amazing. So Jupiter Ascending is a movie curious about, but I'm especially curious to see whether or not Channing Tatum can actually pull off playing an albino warrior with Wolf. DNA. I don't know. We're going to get the answer to my question, Josh, about Channing Tatum next week. It opens February 6th, and we will be reviewing it on the show that week. So That's right. February 6th. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he will be a better wolf man than Johnny Depp in Into the Woods. I, I just have that sense. <laughs> well, I that have bar, that feeling. You're setting it really high. <laughs> exactly. My number four question is, can Tina Fey and Amy Poehler recapture their Golden Globes magic with sisters? Everyone's favorite Golden Globes co-hosts, their grown siblings here who are going to throw one last house party at their parents before the family home is sold. Now, this might not be much more than the usual arrested adolescent silliness, but just the fact that it's two women playing that tune and two extremely funny women like Faye and Polar should give it plenty of ingenuity. They did share the screen together already in 2008 with Baby Mama. Okay. I was wondering if you'd get a mention in there or just overlook it. No, it, it's okay. I, I mean, I like it overall, but really, by far, everything that is good about Baby Mama has to do with Faye and Polar's chemistry together. And that's something that's only further blossomed in their Golden Globe stint. So I do think this has promise. If you're scoffing at them, are you aware of this fact? 
Are you ready for this? I'm ready. The director of Sisters is Jason Moore. Do you know what else Jason Moore directed? Oh, I do. Oh, I do. Pitch perfect. Your eyes just lit up. They did. Wow. All of a sudden, jumping near the top of my list. <laughs> I may want to see it now more than the Malik. Well, I'm not surprised at that because Pitch Perfect <laughs> 2 was your number three. Oh, okay. It was behind it was your number two. <laughs> We've got a little ways to wait for Sisters, though. December 18 is the release date on that. All right. My number four is Can Joe Wright Make Me Care About Peter Pan? Or I've got the full title of this question. Can Joe Wright make me care about Peter Pan or the unexpected virtue of ignorance? Actually, no, I'm sorry. That's that's not it. Less pretentiously. Or can Joe Wright make me care about fantasy, period? Yeah. I'm speaking of the movie Pan starring Hugh Jackman. And the thing about Pan in general, the story just never really captured my imagination. Not as a kid. The stage play, seeing it as a young boy, you don't never really any, interested me. You no. don't care for Peter Pan in any form not really. or shape? No. No, I don't. And the Spielberg movie is, I'm sorry, pretty terrible. This is supposedly a pan prequel. Of course it is. That's what these films are these days. And in reading a little article over at the AV Club about the trailer, it says this. Relative unknown Levi Miller plays Peter, a World War II-era orphan who's kidnapped by terrifying clown pirates and taken to Neverland. There he meets the villainous Blackbeard, that's Hugh Jackman, sounding a bit like his prestige character's drunken doppelganger. The, for some reason, extremely handsome Hook, Garrett Hedlund, sounding a bit like Daniel Plainview and There Will Be Blood, and the enchanting Tiger Lily, Rooney Mara, sounding just like Rooney Mara. The little one, he wears the pan. The pan is our tribe's bravest warrior. Well, well, well. The princess, I presume. Oh, well, I'm actually just a minor, but I appreciate the compliment. Bishop. Looking at Joe Wright's films, I liked Hannah quite a bit in 2011, Anna Karenina 2012, less so, but my God, the style of that film was pretty breathtaking. It really is a technical marvel. And then, as has been well documented here, Atonement back in 2007, one of my favorite films of the last 10 years. And that film, similarly to Hannah, similarly, of course, to Pan, is a movie with a child protagonist at the center of it. It's about imagination and storytelling and creating a world separate from the real world. So I'm hoping that Wright can put the stylistic flourishes of a movie like Anna Karenina to great narrative effect, as I think he did in Atonement. But we'll see. Again, the story just doesn't interest me. It's another case like Trevorrow with Jurassic Park. Because of the director, I'm interested in seeing how the film plays out. It's going to be released June 26th. Yeah, what does it say that you have no time for a story about a boy who refuses to grow up? Why do you have to psychoanalyze it? I don't know. That's a question for another time, perhaps. My number three question is how many Oscars will go to the cast of Carol? I did mention this (laughs) film in passing on our preview show, part one of our preview show, as an honorable mention. I grouped it with some of the other 2015 releases from established auteurs. That's Todd Haynes here, and he's adapting a Patricia Highsmith novel about a 1950s department store clerk who falls for an older married woman. The combination of Haynes and Highsmith alone is intriguing. Her books have been made into the talented Mr. Ripley, of course, and also strangers on a train. But listen to who Haynes has for the two main characters here. Rooney Mara, previously mentioned by you, and Kate Blanchett. 
they have seven nominations between them. Yes, one of those is only for Mara, but still, that's that's a pretty good track record. Now, Blanchett, of course, is already familiar with Highsmith material from Mr. Ripley. Mara, I, I think, you know, you could say she's already dabbled in this sort of territory with Steven Soderbergh's side effects. Mm-hmm. So this holds a lot of promise, especially seeing those two together. No set date on this yet, but we should get it this year. You know how many Oscar nominations me and Kate Blanchett have together? <laughs> Six. Six. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. I'm really carrying my <laughs> weight there. In fact, Josh, you may recall that one year ago, sitting here doing our top five things about 2014 we were looking forward to, I had this pairing of Rooney Mara I do not recall and that, Kate Blanchett I wouldn't have put it on, on my, my list. list because Carol was supposed to come out last year. <laughs> oh, boy. And now we don't have a date for it still this year. So, so does that mean we're sure to get it this year? It means or... you have to come up with another number four yes. pick on <laughs> the spot. i work on that right now. <laughs> Obviously, I'm with you, though. A very good choice. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing our top five question marks of 2015. Things we're curious about, things we're anticipating, we hope will be answered in the new year of films. And my number three is, can they make two good Bond films in a row? The movie is Spectre. I'm not a Bond expert, but just going back 20 years or so, I remember kind of hating The World Is Not Enough with Pierce Brosnan and Denise Richards, let's not forget. Then I kind of liked Die Another Day in 2002. You jump ahead to Daniel Craig, really dug Casino Royale in 2006, Quantum of Solace in 2008, not so much. Then really enjoyed Skyfall, the 2012 movie Sam Mendes directed, Roger Deakins, his cinematography, a key part of why I liked it so much. And now you've got Sam Mendes back to make Spectre. He's fine as a filmmaker. I do like many of his films, actually. But the real reason for excitement here is the bad guys, as it often is with Bond movies. Christoph Waltz, who I think is just one of those actors born to play a Bond villain. I mean, it was inevitable from the moment he came out of the womb. He was going to be a Bond villain. That might be too correct. It could be. And there's all this talk that I don't pay all that much attention to, but he might be playing Ernst Blofeld, the head of Spectre, who was introduced in You Only Live Twice in 1967 and comes up in a couple other Bond movies. So looking forward to it for Christoph Waltz. Dave Bautista is one of the henchmen, supposedly, one of my 2014 surprises in that Best of the Rest show where he's in Guardians of the Galaxy. And I said, I thought he wasn't just funny, this former wrestler turned actor, but he was my favorite character in that entire movie. Thought his comic timing was great. His physicality was wonderful and sold so many funny moments. And the cinematography, I expect, will be very good as well, despite Roger Deakins not being a part of it. His replacement, Hoyt Van Hoytema, who... Has to be good because he's Dutch. Well, he's also part Swiss and has spent most of his time in Sweden, from what I can tell. But he's the guy who shot Interstellar, shot her for Spike Jones. He shot Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So very good track record there from him. I want to see Spectre. And maybe, just maybe, we'll see two decent Bond movies in a row. That's the Star Trek formula, right? That everyone talks about every other one. Oh, yeah. It's supposed the to odd be, ones or yeah, the even ones. Something or, like that. Mm-hmm. Even though, really, they're all bad. But. <laughs> How dare you? My number two, how will the Hunger Games end? Somehow, miraculously, I don't know how this story concludes. And yes, I just opened myself up to a bunch of spoiler tweets, I realize. But I've only read the first book. Didn't really feel compelled to go beyond that in terms of the novels. So that's all I knew. I regularly shush Debbie and my older daughter whenever they start talking about Mockingjay. So far, that's worked. Uh, obviously, I'm avoiding spoilers on the web. So my son hates it. He's still mad about the ending of how the How it ends? Books. Well, yeah. that's... 
I do have that sense. So people want to talk about it because they're angry about mm-hmm. it and uh, they can't do that around me. So that means that one of the pleasures of the Hunger Games has been all along, well, after the first series, I should say, is just this pure narrative propulsion and wondering where it's going to go. Uh, I've been enjoying it as an old-fashioned, serialized story. I'm wondering where do PETA's loyalties really lie at this point? What's going to be the fate of Katniss? Will she choose PETA or Gale? No, I, I don't really care so much about that aspect. Thankfully, the movies don't care all that much either. But otherwise... I can't wait to find out how this series does come to a conclusion. I hope it manages to sustain itself because I've enjoyed all of them. We're going to have to wait till November 20 to find out. Yeah, Spectre as well is a November 6th release, so we have some time on both of those picks. My number two is Can Don Cheadle Write and Direct Himself or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance? No, I'm sorry. Or Can Don Cheadle Write and Direct a Miles Davis biopic as creative and as bold as the man himself? The movie is Miles Ahead. This is a movie that has been talked about for so long. I think you can trace it back to at least 2006 was the first time, maybe even before that, we heard of a supposed Miles Davis biopic coming out. And then you heard that Don Cheadle was going to play Miles, and it just seemed perfect. He looks like Miles, which is important, but also exudes that kind of star presence that Miles certainly exuded and an intimidating presence, despite a small stature. Don Cheadle, like Miles, I think, are the kind of guys he can at least pull it off. I don't think Don Cheadle's naturally this way, the way Miles was, but he can pull off walking into any room and thinking he's the baddest person there. That's important if you're going to make a Miles Davis movie. But the thing that really gets me beyond Cheadle, beyond the fact that I'm a big Miles Davis fan, is that what really drew Cheadle to the project was focusing on one particular part of his life. We've covered this yeah. over the past few weeks and how you make a biopic. I think he's going to mix in things from his whole career, all 65 years or so. But the focus, according to some of the things I read, is actually this period from 1975 to 1980, which is the period where Miles didn't release any new music or perform in public. Hmm. And that's what Cheadle said got him really interested. He said, for me, when someone has been prolific for that long and then they go quiet for five years, that's when I go, what's that about? that he had done this recording during that time that was never released and no one ever heard. There was just a lot of intrigue to me, a lot of mystery. It felt like an opportunity. So to get back to my question there, my sub-question, focusing on this amazing artist's greatest period of inactivity, that seems to be taking a huge chance with a biopic. Doesn't hurt that Herbie Hancock, an amazing musician, I should add an amazing Grinnell College graduate and a former player in Miles Davis's legendary quintet, He's consulting on it, which should bode well. This is another one, though, with no release date. It hasn't been set yet. I'm a little skeptical it's going to come out in 2015, but most people are pointing to this year. I have confirmed through my insider sources, Google, that it's finished filming. So that's at least positive. Gives me reason to hope we're actually going to see miles ahead this year. Don Cheadle making his directorial debut. That's why that was a key part for me as well. He's been a great actor over the years. I think he directed one episode of... What's that series on Netflix with Kevin Spacey, Everyone Loves, The oh, Washington House of, Cards. House of Cards? I think he maybe directed an episode of that, but otherwise hasn't made a feature. So, yeah, and you know, Cheadle's going to be able to pull off the performance, but the direction is the question. It sounds like if he is going in a little different, it's not going to be the standard biopic. 
That's what approach. I'm hoping. Yeah. So that's that's a good start right there. My number one question for 2015 is, will Sundance 2015 give us another boyhood? As you mentioned, Adam, I am going to be going for my first time. It's really going to be my first time at a major festival beyond Chicago. So I'm excited about getting that full festival experience where you don't go home at night. You just you don't stop. You keep seeing movies. If you want to follow what I'm up to, I'll probably be doing stuff on Letterboxd, certainly Twitter, and I'm there as Larson on film. I'm not sure what my viewing strategy is going to be yet. This is something I think I've talked to you about. I know I was emailing Sam Van Hogren, one of our producers, about, and I'm trying to choose. Do I go with projects from established names, even though that I'm intrigued at because mm-hmm. of their track records, even no. though I know they're Don't probably going to get a Chicago release date? It's really tempting, though, when you see some of this lineup. Or do I go with these never heard of filmmakers who do have intriguing projects on the docket? Now, in light of our Oscar conversation over the nominations and the controversy there where we talked about diversity, both gender and otherwise, I'm tempted to only see films directed by women and non-white filmmakers. Just not a bad idea. Make that my way to go. But that would mean not seeing something like Boyhood if I was there last year, which or Whiplash premiere or Whiplash. And perhaps more importantly, it would mean skipping Don Verdeen, the new comedy from Nacho Libre director Jared Hess, (laughs) which I already have a ticket for. Wow. Can't do that. So this might not be a hard and fast rule of the diversity lineup, but I think I'm probably overall going to try to lean that way in my choices. Hmm. I think that is a good approach. My Sundance record is six movies in one day. And if you can't pull it off, Josh, then just go home. Six movies, huh? How was how were those last two for you? I have no recollection of them whatsoever. (laughs) But since when was that important? My number one question from 2015 is, can Cameron Crowe become relevant again? The movie is the untitled Cameron Crowe project. I think they're going to change that. Not totally sure. I'll give you this description from Screen Crush, our friend Matt Singer, host of Film Spotting SVU, one of the co-hosts of Film Spotting SVU, the critic for that site. And they give you this description. An all-star cast, including Bradley Cooper, Emma Stone, John Krasinski, Rachel McAdams, Danny McBride, Bill Murray, and Alec Baldwin, starring Crowe's latest project, a long in-development tale of a defense contractor, Cooper, who falls for a woman, Stone, while working on a satellite launch in Hawaii. Why we're excited? Look, if after Vanilla Sky, Elizabeth Town, and We Bought a Zoo, you want to say that you're no longer excited for anything with Cameron Crowe's name on it, we get it. But we haven't forgotten Say Anything and Almost Famous or Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and we remain resolute in our belief Crow will regain his form and deliver yet another masterpiece. Here's hoping his untitled project, previously known as Deep Tiki, is it. Untitled Cameron Crow project, much better than Deep Tiki. I'm with you 100% on that. I really hope they keep that if Deep Tiki is still an option. But here's the thing. My original question, what I actually had written in here at number one and then I pretty quickly erase, was... Can Cameron Crowe make another great film? I think he could, but I'm skeptical he'll do it in 2015 with that plot and that cat. Just something about it just really doesn't draw me in at all. Maybe he has another masterpiece in him. I so hope he does. But nothing about what I just read gives me that confidence other than obviously some good players there and an overall likable cast. I'm not after greatness with Cameron Crowe at this point. I will just take relevance. I would just like to see a good movie from Cameron Crowe. Wouldn't that be nice? But once the bar is that high for a filmmaker, doesn't relevance mean greatness? Maybe. I mean, it's almost as if if you can't meet that again, and I'm not saying this is fair, 
But the perception is if he can't meet that again, then yeah. eh, who cares? Mm-hmm. It was originally scheduled for a Christmas release this past year and was pushed to May 29th. And I've read a few different things about it where that normally is a bad sign. But in this case, it's really moving to a much lighter weekend. And, well, that normally is a bad thing that it doesn't want any competition. But maybe it will serve this film a little bit better than being up against some of those other bigger wide Christmas releases. So it doesn't really matter to me when it comes out. I want to know if he can be relevant again, and I'm trying to be optimistic about it. For what it's worth, I liked We Bought a Zoo. Really? I did. You were the one. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I will admit, I never even saw the full movie, but every scene I've seen on it on TV looks atrocious. It's it's a kid's movie, Mm. I guess, is what I would say. So I can see out of context how that would be the impression. Those are our top five questions for 2015, part two of our 2015 movie preview. Josh, any questions that have gone unsaid at this point for you? Maybe a couple. I am wondering how director George Miller will reboot his own movie. Usually it's someone else taking over the reins. In this case, he's going back to Mad Max territory. That should be interesting. Also, it's not will Tom Hardy be good as twins how good yes will tom hardy be as twins he's playing them in legend which is about british gangsters in the 1950s i didn't come up with great questions here i'm gonna have to make them up on the spot some other movies i jotted down and i guess the question is can judd apatow make a movie centered around women the amy schumer movie Trainwreck. not only has amy schumer but brie larson who we love and tilda swinton who we love in a judd apatow movie mr holmes ian mckellen sherlock holmes as an old man Curious. Z for Zachariah. Can Craig Zobel, the guy who gave us Compliance and The Great World of Sound, these small little Sundance movies, do this big budget sci-fi movie? That's the Sundance it's one been I'm playing. talking about. It's been playing. So and, do I go see that? Yeah. Or do I So see? far, the majority of tweets I've seen have not been positive. But All right. I'm just going to try to put that out of my mind. I guess my question for Chappie would be, can oh, no. that director, oh, no. whose name I'm drawing a blank on, uh, after Elysium... Neil Neil Blomkamp, after Elysium, can he draw me back in and make me like him? Well, you know, as a fan fan of Elysium, just knowing that Charlto Copley is providing the motion work for Chappie, the voice, I think, that's... He was so good in Elysium. I don't even know if I can get on board with that. (laughs) And I guess my answer to your Tom Hardy question is not, will Kerry Mulligan be good in Thomas Vinterberg's Far From the Madding Crowd, but how good will Kerry Mulligan be in Far From the Madding Crowd? So some honorable mentions there. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting and at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Don't forget also to vote in this week's Filmspotting poll. We're asking, which is Clint Eastwood's best film? That's at Filmspotting.net. Out in limited release this weekend at the Gene Siskel Film Center, in addition to the Godard Goodbye to Language 3D playing their still life. This is a film from Italy. It's a comic drama with UK actor Eddie Marzen as a caseworker who tracks down the relatives of people who are found dead and alone. It doesn't sound like it's going to be a barrel of laughs, but it says it's a comic drama, and if any actor can pull it off, Eddie Marzon is pretty good at that. Out in wide release, Black or White, a grandfather drawn into custody battle over his mixed-race granddaughter, Kevin Costner, and Octavia Spencer. We're just going to move on. <laughs> okay, We're just let gonna me move say on. this. It's written and directed by Mike Bender. Mm-hmm. You I loved thought, The Upside of Anger. I thought The Upside of oh, Anger no. with Costner really? was pretty good. Really? Yes. This 
I don't know. Hmm. The Loft, an American remake of the Belgian film about five friends who share a loft for their extramarital affairs. Problems, they always arise in these situations, Josh, when an unknown dead woman is discovered in the loft. That always happens. It, yes, just, it always happens. You know what's going to happen. James Marsden and Professor Plum with the candlestick in, <laughs> in that movie. Oh, wait a minute. I have the candlestick, so it has to be the lead pipe. Okay. Project Almanac Teens discover secret plans for a time machine that also out next week on the show. We are going to discuss the latest from the Wachowski siblings, Jupiter Ascending, with not only Channing Tatum, but Mila Kunis. And the top five at this point to be announced. Up in the air. We have a few different options. We are not sure yet. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is from X-Hex. It comes from their 2014 album, Rips. More information is at xhexband.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.